It is good to be back with you here and opening God's Word. So as we said, we're kicking off a brand new series here today entitled Encountering Jesus. And we're going to be walking through eight encounters that Jesus had with people through the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be starting with Jesus's very first disciples. Five men, Andrew, John, Simon, Nathaniel, and Philip. And we're going to see how all of these men encountered the Savior for the first time. So can we just pause for a minute and once again ask for the Lord's help? So I would ask you to pray not just with me this morning, but for me this morning, that the Lord would help us to hear from him today. Lord, we need you. Those are not just empty words. Those are the true confession of our heart. We need you. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would come in great power that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Lord, I pray that we would see what we cannot see with our eyes, but you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be gripped freshly, keenly aware of the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. In 1975, a man by the name of Steve Wozniak started attending the Homebrew Computer Club, a group of hobbyists that enjoyed discussing electronics. It was nerd paradise. Inspired by the engage of ideas, Wozniak went home and began building what would become the very first home computing device known as the PC, the personal computer. As the employee of HP, he was a loyal employee, he wanted to share his ideas with the company that he worked for. So he gave HP a chance to buy this PC idea. HP rejected the idea five different times. Wozniak brought them the idea. They said, no, we don't want it. We don't see any practical application of it. No, we don't want it. No, we don't want it. No, we don't want it. And finally, Wozniak had freedom of conscience, as it were, to explore other other avenues. At this time, Wozniak met another young man with an interest in electronics by the name of, do you know, Steve Jobs. Unlike HP, Jobs saw tremendous potential in Wozniak's idea. In time, Jobs and Wozniak formed Apple computers, and as they say, the rest is history. Today, we have iPhones. Hold them up. How many of you have one? Hold them up. iPhones, iPods, MacBooks. AirPods, I don't get paid for this, which are amazing, by the way. AirPods are amazing. Okay, back behind the pulpit. Um, We have all of these interventions, and Apple is the second most profitable company in the world. And Apple products have become an integral part of the way many of us do our daily lives. All this happened in one sense because Wozniak met Jobs. You see what I'm going here? just because this relationship was formed. But as significant as the introductions of the Steves was, we learn about an introduction of far greater importance in John's gospel. You see, when Wozniak met Jobs, to be sure, the world in which they lived was changed. But as we read the gospel of John, we see people meeting Jesus, and they themselves are changed. Not just the world in which they live, but they are utterly transformed. So when in the presence of Jesus, the religious teacher, Nicodemus, becomes the humble student, the socially scorned woman at the well becomes the bold evangelist, the curious crowds become the beloved flock, the accused adulteress becomes the forgiven daughter, the marginalized blind man becomes the outspoken defender of the faith, the skeptical disciple Thomas becomes the joyful worshiper of the Lord. The idea is simply this, an encounter with Jesus changes everything. When you truly encounter Christ, it changes everything. Perhaps nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the lives of Jesus' most intimate followers. We call them the disciples. When you look at the 12, these 12 people that were kind of the inner circle of Jesus' followers, what is extraordinary about them is their ordinariness. 
I mean, there's nothing really to write home about about these men. I do not mean this as an insult, but rather to simply say that Peter, Andrew, James, John, and the other John, Philip, Nathaniel, Simon, Judas, and the other Judas, Matthew and Thomas were just regular dudes. Some were white collar, some were blue collar, some were wealthy, some were disadvantaged, some were politically progressive, others were more conservatives, but they were all normal. Yet after encountering Jesus, even their adversaries stood up and took notice of the transformation that had happened to him. You remember the story if you've read in the, gospel, in, the, in the book of Acts. Here goes Peter and John, and they are preaching powerfully. And the religious leaders of the day who didn't like Jesus and they didn't like his followers, they come along and they see these men preaching, and here is what they say. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, in other words, they don't have degrees, they don't have some special training, they're just regular people, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. The religious leaders looked at these unschooled fishermen's powerful preaching and were dumbfounded. That is, until they considered one fact. They've been with Jesus. It's as if, in the religious leader's mind, it was as if they said, oh, that makes sense. They've been with Jesus. Like, that makes all the difference in the world. If a person has been with Jesus, then obviously they're going to be changed. Obviously they're going to be transformed. Or to put it simply, Jesus is the explanation for unexplainable transformation. You can explain unexplainable things when people are in the presence of the Savior. So what is it about Jesus that makes him so powerful? What is it about the Lord, this person that we call the Christ, that makes him so compelling? Why did the disciples willingly alter the entire trajectory of their lives to follow this man who seemed to be a complete stranger to them? What made Jesus utterly compelling? I think we find the answers to those questions in the backstory of the first disciples. You know, backstories are very popular today in movies and TVs. Here we have a backstory, as it were, of how Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all these disciples became the disciples. This is the story of their origin, of how they came encounter with Jesus. And what we find here is that all of them found Jesus so compelling, so amazing, that they changed everything about themselves and their lives. And that's the word, that's the point of the message this morning. I think the invitation of John chapter 1 is simply this. We must find Jesus compelling. We too are being invited to find Jesus compelling. Here's the reality. L- listen, listen to this. If you are captivated, if you are captivated by Jesus, then, then the commands of the Bible will not seem like a challenge to you. If your heart is just gripped by Jesus, then it won't be difficult for you to follow him, right? Because you'll just be like, this dude is amazing. I will follow him to hell. I will go wherever he says because I am captivated by him. But, but my friends, if you're just not compelled by Jesus, if you don't find him that impressive, no amount of me or Rod standing up here screaming, follow the Bible, will matter. Because you won't do it. Because the commands of Christ will just feel like an overwhelming burden to you. Taxing. So my, my call today is not follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. My call today is look at him. Find him compelling. And then when he calls you to do stuff, guess what you'll do? Yes, sir. You'll get in line. You'll get behind him because you want him. You desire him. Our problem often is not, it's not that we don't know what to do. Our problem is often that Jesus just isn't big enough in our eyes. We're just not that blown away by him. And I hope today as we look at this text of scripture that you in a small way, or maybe in a fantastic way, will find Jesus even more compelling. So you ready? You ready? Let's go. So the compelling Christ. I want to point out several ways that these first disciples found, or several reasons why these first disciples found Jesus so compelling. Number one, because Jesus can cure your blindness. The disciples were compelled by Jesus because he can open eyes that you didn't know you needed to have opened. 
The passage opens with John the Baptist. We read it, right? The forerunner of Christ, powerfully testifying to Jesus's identity in John chapter one, verses 29 through 34. So John stands out there and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then a little bit later on, he says, I'm telling you, this guy is the son of God. Now, John didn't do that primarily for himself. I think in some ways, John was already persuaded of this reality, but he actually did it for a couple of his disciples that were standing there with him. You say, Ryan, where do you get that? Look down in verse 35. Look at what John the Baptist says. The next day, John was standing with with two of his disciples. So just like Jesus had disciples, John the Baptist had disciples. So here's these two guys that have been following John the Baptist and he turns to him and he says, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So these two men who were standing there, who, who we find out is Andrew and John, that's who it is. He turns to them and says, hey guys, this is him. This is the Lamb of God. So what happens next? It's amazing. The two disciples, verse number 37, heard him say this and followed Jesus. So off they go, following Jesus. When Jesus notices that he has a couple of tails, he engages them, turns around and says to him, what are you looking for? To which Andrew and John respond, Rabbi, which means teacher, verse number 38, where are you staying? Then Jesus responds with a loaded answer. It's loaded. Verse number 39. Come and you'll see. Say that with me. This is Jesus doing a little double entendre. You say, what do you mean? Well, at one level, all Jesus is saying is like, hey, come this way and you will see where I am currently staying. You'll see my hotel or whatever it is. Come and you'll see. But on a deeper level, Jesus meant, if you will truly come, If you will truly come to me, you will truly see who I am. And see, they did. This is awesome. For after spending the afternoon with Jesus, we are told that Andrew had reached a very firm conclusion about him. Verse number 41. Andrew first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Something about this interaction between Jesus and Andrew caused Andrew to see Jesus. Now, certainly at this point, Andrew didn't understand all that he would in the future, but he was convinced enough to immediately go tell his brother that they had found their long-awaited king and deliverer. So what happened to Andrew? I would argue, I would argue that Jesus opened Andrew's eyes. Say, what do you mean by that, Ryan? Well, Since the fall, since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Bible tells us that all of humankind has a problem. We have a problem. Namely, we can't see. We're blind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 puts it this way. The God of this age, that's Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, there it is, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, because of our sin, we can look at Jesus and have no idea who he really is. We can hear the stories about Jesus and think it's foolish. We can have the gospel preached to us and find it unattractive. Why? Because we're blind. Our spiritual eyes cannot see because of the effects of sin in all of us. But here's the good news. Jesus came to destroy the work of the destroyer. Jesus came so that blind people could see, or as he said it when he taught in the synagogue. This is what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive, and notice this phrase, and the recovery of the sight to the blind and to free the oppressed. And Jesus is not just talking about physical blindness there. Yes, during his earthly ministry, Jesus did cure some people who had physical organs. Their eyes did not work. But the larger principle is that all of us were blind and Jesus came so that we could see who he really was. 
That is why he came. So Andrew and John come encounter with Jesus. And at some point in the conversation, all of a sudden they're like, whoa, they see. I, I would have loved to be in that room at that moment, wouldn't you? maybe Andrew is sitting there and he's listening to Jesus and Jesus says something and he looks over at John and gives one of these. Or maybe they just, Jesus says something and their kind of mouths drop open, slack jawed, like, I don't know what happened, but something, something in some moment changed their perception of Jesus and they were captivated. Now, when I was in college, and I went to college in northern Wisconsin. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. <laughs> and, and our college campus, I mean, you didn't wander onto our college campus. It was like way back out in the woods. And one thing that they would do periodically, they would have this activity, and it was called stargazing. So they would load us all up in a wagon and take us like back out into the, the back 40, if you will, of the campus, and they would show us the stars. And the stars out in the country are amazing, right? If you've ever been out there, there's no city lights or anything. But I didn't really, like, I knew that the stars were there. I saw them my whole life. But I didn't know a thing about astronomy. I, I didn't know anything about constellations. But one of the people who guided the tour, he had one of these um, spotlight flashlights. You know what I'm talking about? These things that are like, you know, you shine them on you and you can't see for the next four days, that type of thing. And, and he would take it and he would shine it up at the sky and say, see these three stars right here? These are Orion's belt. Or see these stars over here? They connect in this way. And this is Ursa Major. And this is Ursa Minor. And he would go, and here's the scorpion over here. And he'd go around and he would kind of paint the constellations with the light. And all of a sudden, I could see what was right in front of my face. And now when I go outside and look up, I can't unsee them. They're just there. They're just kind of burned into my eyes because I took time to see and somebody pointed them out to us. This is what Jesus does. He shows you what's right in front of your face. Everybody, everybody in the United States at least knows who Jesus is. Most everybody, right? Like they have some sort of idea about who Jesus is. Many people across the globe, they've heard the name of Jesus. Maybe they've even read the Bible or heard stories about Jesus, but very few people see who he really is. But when you truly encounter Jesus, this Jesus that is just a figure in a book, this Jesus that you might think is just some historical figure like Gandhi or some fairy tale like King Arthur, all of a sudden, he becomes something far more precious to you. He becomes real. He becomes the Savior. Because why? Because Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind. And that's why Peter, that's why Andrew and John said, kindly, I'm sure, John the Baptist, you're awesome. But we'll see you later. Because we have found the Christ. And we can see who he is. That's why you should find Jesus compelling. Because if you're blind, only he can make you see. Number two, not only did the disciples find Jesus compelling because he opens the eyes of the blind, but they found Jesus compelling because Jesus can change your identity. I love this next story. The next individual that encounters Jesus in this passage is the ever flamboyant, oft fallible Peter. Only when we first meet, only when he first meets Jesus, his name isn't Peter at all, it's Simon. This has to be one of the most unusual first meetings in human history. So Andrew, who is compelled by Jesus, goes and gets his brother Simon, and he brings him to Jesus. There's no introduction. There's no pleasantries. Just this straightforward pronouncement from the Lord. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. I mean, J Jesus doesn't consult Simon. Hey, do you, do you like the name Peter? Is that cool with you? I mean, he just is like straight up, look, Simon, son of John, not your name anymore. You are now Peter. What's interesting is that the Peter that we read about in the gospel is not very Peter-like. The word Peter or Cephas, do you know what it means? It means rock, stone, stability, strength, this idea of being constant, but the Peter we read about on the pages of Scripture is up and down, high and low, impetuous and downright brash, and yet Jesus calls him 
rock. But in time, in time, this very unrock-like person begins to live up to his name. So much so that near the end of Jesus' ministry, he says this to Peter. And I say to you, Matthew chapter 16, that you are Peter, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So vacillating Simon, brash, impetuous Simon, Jesus names him Peter Rock and then changes him fundamentally. What Peter was learned is that his identity, the identity that Jesus gave him is the one that ultimately matters. For Jesus not only has the authority to give a new name, but he, has, but he also has the power to make Peter fit that name. Simon was called Peter, and he became Peter-like because Jesus said so. Look, look, listen to this idea. Jesus tells a better story about you. Jesus tells a better story about you. No doubt in your life, you have some things that kind of just weigh you down, some things that you identify yourself with. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them downright shameful. And that is the identity that you assigned. But Jesus looks at Peter and says, uh-uh, you are not primarily Simon, son of John. You are now Cephas. You are now Peter. You are now rock. And you are the one upon which I will build my church. You vacillating, impetuous, foot-in-mouth disease person. I will build my church upon you. I am going to change fundamentally who you are. But here's the thing. This truth is not simply a gift to Peter. It's a gift to all of us. Listen to what the Lord says in Revelation chapter 2. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Notice this next phrase. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. When you trust in Jesus, you get a new name. You are not who you once were. If you trust in the work of Jesus, he tells a better story about you. He knows who you are, despite of who you were, despite of your past, despite of the burdens that you carry around. Jesus is compelling because he says, I've got a better name for you. I want to call you something different. Well, to illustrate that, uh, maybe you've seen um, some of those cardboard testimonies. Have you seen those before? where somebody writes something on the front and then they kind of flip them over and they, they show a different identity. And what I want to do is I want to interview right now, just briefly, Zach Fowler. So Zach is on staff here at Gospel Hope. Many of you have gotten to know him and we already love Zach in a short time here. And so I'm just going to take a minute and have Zach share a little bit about his story and how Jesus gave him a new name and a new identity. So Zach wrote, yeah, come on right down here, Zach. Zach wrote um, some words that he would use to describe himself before he met Jesus. So, angry, empty, fatherless. Now, Zach, why, why, tell us the story of, like, why you would write those words about yourself. Why would you use those to describe you? We need a mic here. Yeah, <laughs> Blue. Hey, hey, there we are. Um, so I, I think a couple reasons. One, starting at the bottom, fatherless. Uh, my dad passed away when I was really young. Um, had a stepdad for a number of years who wasn't um, the best man. And he and my mom divorced when I was a freshman in high school. And so fatherlessness really, um, really just ruled and reigned my identity and kind of my decision making. Um, and ultimately, in my view of God, I viewed God is uh, somebody who, some, uh, an entity that didn't care about me, um, and I failed to be able to see him as a father. Um, and emptiness, I mean, out of that uh, brokenness and that wound, I'm going to uh, drugs and different addictions and um, trying to fill that void from dry wells. And then um, it's, it just kind of feeds itself. I, I was angry, I was confused, didn't know how to process 
um, the suffering that um, in my life that had happened to me and also that I was inflicting upon my mom and others in my life. And so it was a nasty cycle. Um, I, would, I would have claimed to be an atheist at the time um, growing up. And so those, I think, really encapsulate who I was uh, before encountering Jesus. And how did you encounter Zach briefly? How did, um, you, how did you meet Jesus the first time? Briefly. Uh, so I first heard the gospel in the summer of 2013 after my freshman year of college. And um, it wasn't until March of 2014, about nine months later, that um, I gave my life to Christ. And, and throughout those nine months, I mean, they must have been running a Who's Your One campaign at like 20 different churches. Because <laughs> literally, I had people, I was working two jobs, people coming in, sharing the gospel with me, um, and just a couple of people I consider brothers, um, really intentionally sharing the gospel with me, trying to open the Bible with me. Um, and it wasn't until after a really rough spring break in 2014 that uh, I sat down and read the Bible. And um, uh, things, I'd heard the gospel, but the, the word of God just illuminated um, uh, sin. Uh, not only I blame my father, blame my stepdad, but my need for a savior and, and the nastiness and the, the shame that I carried for a decade and a half. Um, and that's, Yeah. So <laughs> the people of God, the word of God, and, and prayer, ultimately. And then you wrote here. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can drop that. The oldest passed oh, away. Oh, it's gone. Let's, let's throw that away. Should we rip um, it in half? Yeah. And then after, I've got joy, fathered, and alive. Um, man, scriptures testify. Uh, re restore me to the joy of my salvation. Um, the joy of the Lord is, is your strength. And I think... Um, I, I had a moment the other day... Um, so I just turned 26 on Friday, um, and, uh, you know, to, to have met me when I was 20 years old uh, is to meet a completely different person, and I was 20 years old, and I accepted Christ, and, um, like, in a way, I feel like I have to justify who I was before Christ, but I'm so glad, y'all, so glad y'all don't have to meet the old me, mm. I, like, I really am. I'm so glad y'all don't have to meet the old Zach because of the work of Christ on my behalf and on y'all's behalf, too. We don't have to meet the old versions of each other. We can rejoice in the work of Christ and the continuing work of Christ on our behalf. Mm. And so joyful um, is, is, I think, something that uh, at least I, I'm joyful in my salvation. Uh, fathered, I mean, uh, we... Ephesians 1 tells us we are predestined for adoption as sons through to himself, to God, through Christ Jesus. Um, and man, not, not only spiritually do I, do I know God as a father and see him as a father, but he's been so faithful to place men of God in my life who are two decades down the road in front of me and um, who have just poured into me, treated me like a son. Um, and uh, yeah, he's uh, just used those men in my life to restore the years that the locusts have eaten away. Amen. Amen. And um, I think just alive, you know, um, truly uh, the, the things that were done before Christ were done in death. Ephesians 2 tells us that um, while we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Um, and so I think just life, like there's this vitality that I feel, not only spiritually, I mean, eternally, yes, but like in this life, I have life. Mm. Like, oh man, one of my favorite scriptures is Psalms 84. It says, um, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord. Um, uh, I, I, my, soul, my soul long, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. It's my heart and my flesh. Like biologically, what we would say gives us life, a beating heart, like, skeletal muscles like working together all that stuff biologically what we say gives us life like the, the psalmist writes my 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 heart and my flesh cry out for the living god the one who is truly alive and is able to give us life um and so the, those three things i think kind of encapsulate uh who who i feel like uh man i just love the scripture in revelation he i, I don't know if i've ever read that he writes a new name for us and so, yeah, that's kind of um, my story before and after Amen, Jesus. amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't throw that one away. You can, you can take that one back to the seat. Yeah. So, look, that's not just Peter's story, is it? You know, Simon, son of John, you are Peter. It's not just Zach's story. But it's, it's the story of anyone and everyone who would ever put their hope in Jesus. That if you trust in him, 
you can have a new name, a whole new identity. And I think that's part of the reason why people just walked away and followed Jesus, because he was so compelling in changing their own story and giving them a brand new narrative. All who trust in Jesus are who and what he says they are. That's good news. All who trust in Jesus are who and what he says they are. Number three. Jesus can command your allegiance. If Jesus was firm with Peter, Simon, son of John, you're now Peter, he was downright arresting with Philip. Look at verse number 43 of John chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip. He went out and sought him, and he told him. He didn't ask him. He told him, follow me. Jesus gives no explanation, but he makes a unilateral, life-altering demand. And what is interesting is that we learn that Philip does exactly what Jesus says. But not only that, he, just like Andrews, go and recruits others to do the same. Verse number 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one who Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And this is by, by no means an isolated instance. It was like Jesus' habit to walk through towns and just be like, hey, you're coming with me. So we read, when he meets Matthew or Levi, a very similar thing happens. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And what happened? And he got up and followed him. We applaud great histories, great leaders of history like Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill who with their ability to sway the masses with their words. But no king, no politician, even the greatest public speakers of all time could simply speak and see it done like Jesus could. Look, the authority of Jesus is unparalleled. As you read the gospel narratives, this becomes painfully obvious because with a word, Jesus cures diseases. With a word, he casts out demons. With a word, he forgives sins. With a word, he confounds his enemies. With the word, he captivates the crowd. And with the word, he even raises the dead. In the words of Jesus' adversaries, John 7, verse number 46, no one ever spoke like this. There is just no one who can wield the word like Jesus. Jesus is utterly compelling because he is utterly unique. There is no one like him. Who leaves their job on the spot when somebody says, follow me? Half of Jesus' disciples did it. Follow me. They leave their nets. Follow me. He leaves the tax collector's booth. Follow me. I don't know what Philip's doing, but he comes. The idea is Jesus has authority and he can command your destiny, friends. The word of Jesus is compelling enough to cause you to alter your life. Number four, Jesus can comprehend your heart. After encountering Jesus, Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel, told him, we have found the one who Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, son of Joseph, Joseph from Nazareth. So although Philip is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, Nathanael is a bit skeptical. Look at verse 46 of John chapter 1. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was an obscure town, never mentioned in the Old Testament. So Nathanael's question was not entirely out of place. So naturally, Philip adopts Jesus' tactic. What did Jesus do? When in doubt, he just says something like John 1, 46. Come and see. Talk about a good disciple. Then Nathanael approaches Jesus, again, pulls out one of his unorthodox greetings. It's like Jesus has this whole, you know, bag of unorthodox greetings, and he uses them all in this passage. Here's the one in verse 47 of John chapter 1. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I mean, I don't know. Could Jesus, like, does he not say hello or how are you doing or hi? He just, all, every time he greets somebody, he says something weird. So despite Nathanael's skepticism, which Jesus knew all about, and in spite of Nathanael's insult on Jesus' hometown, did you notice that? Nathanael kind of insults Jesus, which Jesus knew all about. Jesus responds with kindness to Nathanael. Did you catch that? So Nathanael's kind of like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then here comes Nathanael, 
who just said something rude and kind of like nationalist. And, and Jesus says, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Huh. This reminds us of something terribly important. Jesus knows us fully and he loves us deeply. And you could add on anyway. Jesus knows us fully. He knew Nathaniel's skepticism. He knew that he wasn't inclined to believe that anything good could come out of Nazareth. Jesus felt the shade, as we'll see in just a moment. Jesus knew everything about Nathaniel. He knew him down to his roots, and yet Jesus responded with kindness and compassion. Jesus knows us fully and loves us deeply. Trisha and I say this all the time, just for no good reason. We just say, I love you anyway. In a sense, it's a joke that we have going on all the time. But in another sense, it's a reminder like, hey, I'm committed to you. I'm with you. I love you anyway. Well, I didn't do anything. I know, I still love you anyway. And that's what Jesus says to us. Yeah, you're a mess. You can be rude. You don't believe. You're skeptical. You doubt me. I love you anyway. And so he engages with Philip. And then Nathaniel, puzzled by Jesus' access to privileged information, responds to Jesus' unusual salutation. How do you know me? Jesus then demonstrated his knowledge extends way beyond the generalities. I feel like Jesus is just showing off at this point. Look at verse 48. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And apparently Jesus' words hit the mark, which causes Nathaniel to say, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Apparently Jesus' supernatural knowledge coupled with Philip's Testimony were enough to make Nathanael a believer. But Jesus tells Nathanael that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Verse 50, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Jesus is like, that ain't nothing. That's nothing. You will see greater things than this. Truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Verse 51, that bit about ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What, what's going on there? Well, that's an allusion to the Old Testament story of Jacob's ladder. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob had a dream of a ladder that connected heaven to earth. So he falls asleep. He has this dream of a ladder going from heaven to earth and angels coming up and down it. And when he wakes up in Genesis chapter 28, here's what Jacob says. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. Pay attention to that phrase. This is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it, and he named the place Bethel, house of God. This is the house of God. That's what the name Bethel means. What Jacob was saying then was this, this, where he is at in Bethel is the place where God is present. So when Jesus implies that Jacob's ladder is not so much about a city named Bethel, but about him, he is essentially saying, I am the place where God is present. I am the new Bethel. I am the house of God. In Jesus, God came to dwell with man. I mean, just stop and think about that for a minute. When Jesus came as a human being, God himself walked among us. We should find Jesus utterly compelling because he saw our plight he saw the condition of our heart, our skeptical, unbelieving hearts like Nathaniel. And rather than remaining where he was up in heaven, he took on flesh and he descended the ladder. And God came to dwell with us. He lived among us. 
And he died among us on the cross doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus is the Bethel and he knows our hearts. Or to put it all very simply, the Savior who knows all. He knew Nathaniel. He knows us. He knows everything. The Savior who knows all knew all that salvation would cost and he paid the price. I have come down. I am the one who has come to earth. I am God living among you. And the reason I came was to rescue you from your sins. This is astounding. Brothers and sisters, let us never miss the fact that in Jesus, God came to dwell among us so that he could rescue us from our sins. In the end... Each of these five men found Jesus utterly compelling. It's not difficult to see why, is it? But where does this leave us? I mean, I, I doubt tomorrow morning, as you're sitting in your office cu cubicle, you know, Jesus will come walking down the roll, look over at you, and say, follow me. And so you have a little editorial and she left her laptop and followed him. I, I mean, it could happen. I doubt it will. So what is this story all about then? What does this call us to do? Here's the good news. Look, just like the disciples saw Jesus, they had a sight that was not purely physical. You do not have to physically see Jesus in order to truly see Jesus. You don't have to physically see Jesus. You don't have to physically be in the presence of Jesus in order to truly see him. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In other words, there's a type of seeing that happens completely independent from these things. There's a way that you can see that does not utilize your optic nerve at all. You can see without your eyes. So how did this spiritual sight happen? How do we see Jesus like Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and Simon saw him? How do we see Jesus? Look, what is this thing? It's the Bible, right? And what do we often call it? The Word of God. God. I do not think it's any coincidence that in John chapter 1, the very place that we are preaching at, that Jesus himself is called what? The Word of God. We call this the Word of God because it is God revealing himself to us, right? That's what words do. They reveal. They tell you about someone else. And Jesus is the word of God. Why? Because he reveals God to us. I would argue that Jesus may not come walking down the row of your cubicle tomorrow. But I would also say this. You can see him very plainly right here. Because God gave us the written word so that we could see the living word. That's the point of this book. This point, this book is given to us to reveal God to us. We see Jesus in the pages of Scripture. So my invitation to you is very simple today. Will you look? Will you come and see? Will you come and see Jesus in the pages of Scripture? Will you come and see Jesus right now as this book is being preached? Will you see the Word of God through the lens of the Word of God? See him right now. Look to him right now. Look at his face right now as the word of God is being preached. See him in, in just a moment as we stand to our feet and sing songs about him. The word of God going forward. See the word of God tomorrow in your house or tonight as you are opening up this book. See Jesus. Find him compelling, friends. Is your Christian life lackluster? Simply because you don't find Jesus that compelling? Simply because you don't see him very clearly? 
I would urge all of us to take a fresh look at who Jesus is and like the disciples, come and see. Maybe if you do that, you'll be like Andrew or John or Simon or Philip or Nathaniel and you won't be able to do anything but follow him because you are blown away by his beauty and his greatness. So let me close with just a couple of questions this morning. I want to get very practical this morning. First thing is this. Have you ever personally encountered Jesus? Have you ever seen Jesus with the eyes of your heart? Have you ever looked at Jesus and just find him so compelling that you could not look away? Have you experienced this transforming power first not hand? If not, I, I want to say right now, there is someone I would like you to meet right now. Let me introduce you to Jesus. Would you come to him right now? Would you see him right now? You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to perform some sort of spiritual ritual. You don't even have to move from your seat. All you have to do is confess your need for Jesus and put your trust in him. Maybe in your heart you could say something as simple as this. God, I've lived life my own way. And I've made a mess out of it. I've been following my own dictates. I've been living as my own ruler, my own master, my own king. But I need Jesus to change me. I know, I know he came to rescue me, save me. It's as simple as that. Just confessing your need, your brokenness before the Lord and your belief, your confidence that Jesus can save you from that. Save you from your sin, save you from death, save you from hell, save you from judgment. Jesus came to rescue you and I. Have you encountered him? just plead with you this morning if you haven't would you encounter him right now in this moment would you meet Jesus second thing I want to call you to this morning is this are you inviting others to encounter Jesus man if you have found Jesus compelling then it seems only natural then you like Andrew you like Philip would go and tell someone else about him right I mean they see Jesus, they find him compelling. What's the first thing they do? They go and tell somebody about it. And yet, if we're honest, we're far less consistent in sharing our faith than we would like to be, right? Like, I, like just hold yourself to your own standard. Are you as consistent as sharing Christ as you would like to be? If you say yes, amen, praise God. Don't feel any conviction then. But if you, like most of us, probably say, you know what? No. I mean, you even ask that question. The Holy Spirit is challenging me right now. I want to be more consistent in inviting other people to encounter Jesus. Let's do something a little bit unusual this morning or super unusual. Okay, ready? Okay, I'm going to invite everybody to stand up right now. And I want everybody to slide as far as you can this way. Go, slide as far, well, not to the wall. Stay by your seats, stay by your seats. Slide as far as you can this way. So just pack this side out here. you love to see this side of the room right here filled with co-workers family members neighbors people you went to high school with friends wouldn't you love to see people filling this side that just don't know Jesus man let's get rid of this pipe and drape for Pete's sakes wouldn't you love if you're a believer in Jesus Christ it, isn't that, doesn't your heart burn with that? Wouldn't you love to see other people worshiping at the feet of Jesus, right? Now, I'm not saying they need to go to Gospel Hope Church, but this is for the point of illustration, right? Wouldn't it be awesome 
if in two months from now, this place is packed with people that we know? Wouldn't that be incredible? Let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. How's that gonna happen? Not by chance, not because I'm a great preacher. I'm not that good. I mean, people aren't gonna like beat down the doors to get in here. Not because Jalen, you know, has the best tunes in the world. He's pretty good. Not that good. It's going to come because you and I are opening our mouth and in introducing other people to the one that really changes people, right? Say, I've encountered Jesus and it's changed me and I want you to encounter that same thing. Brothers and sisters, let's be about the business of the king. So what we're going to do this morning is the worship team is going to come right now and we're going to sing and you can go back to your seats, but I want to encourage you to do something else. Up here, you see this board. It says, who's your one over it? And there's some Sharpies right here. And as the worship team leads us in, in a song here, they're going to sing for us. I'd like you to, over the next couple minutes, just come on up here. And if there's somebody that God has put on your heart, write their name on here. Don't put their last name. We're not trying to embarrass anybody. If you just want to put initials, that's fine. The point is for us to say, who is the one person that I'm going to identify and seek to be having a gospel conversation with over the next couple weeks? By God's grace, we can't make anybody get saved, right? God is in charge of that. But can we open our mouths? Yes, we can. We can say something. So by God's grace, would you just write initials up here, write a name up here, and we're going to leave this up over the next several weeks and just be praying about it and talking about it and encouraging one another. There's nothing magical about writing a name up there, but it is a bit of accountability in our hearts to say, man, I want to be serious about identifying somebody to share my faith with. So I'm going to pray. You can go back to your seats. You can start coming up here. The band is going to lead us, and then feel free to write some names up on this board. Lord, Would you break our hearts for people? Would you cause us to identify people that we want to invite to encounter the Savior? Father, you are compelling. You open the eyes of the blind. You change our identity. You command our allegiance, Lord. And you know our hearts. The deficiency is not with the message of Christ. Lord, so I said, pray that you would rescue us from our fear, rescue us from our, our lack of love for others. And I pray that we would share Christ boldly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's sing together and feel free to write some names down on this board.